about, I don't know, maybe two months, eight weeks or so before Teresa and I found ourselves living in southeast Texas, we found ourselves standing in the country of Israel. And we had flown into Tel Aviv and spent a couple of days in the northern part of the country all the way up to the Syrian border and looking around and doing some things and just kind of drinking in something of what uh, the landscape looks like in what some people call the Holy Land. And as we were there, one day we found ourselves stuck on a bus. Well, we found ourselves stuck on buses every day just about. And uh, buses have a way of kind of bringing you down to reality even when you're in Israel. For instance, if you drink a lot of coffee at breakfast and you get stuck on a bus, it's hard to appreciate the places that you go. And that was kind of the background for the day that we found ourselves on a bus driving through a village, uh, maybe a small city, but probably village is really the better way to say it, uh, that most of us would know by the name of Nazareth. We kind of drove along the side of that and started making our way up this hill. They might call it a mountain, but uh, for Colorado language, it's a hill. And as we found our way in a parking area up there and looking off to one side across a real small valley was the village of Nazareth, and then in front of us was just a winding pathway that took us through some small trees, uh, I found it difficult to focus on the significance of where we were. Until we got out towards the end, not quite at the end of that little pathway, and it kind of broke open, a tree clearing towards the right, and our guide stopped us, and he said, now look over there, and you'll see the town of Nazareth. And he started talking to us and trying to visually get us to connect with a church that's over there that's one of those traditional sites uh, of a major event in church history. And particularly, it's the place where Mary received the word that she was going to be... having the Messiah who would be named Jesus the Christ. Uh, and so they built a kind of a church-type, shrine-type thing over there. And he was trying to get our attention on that. And I was looking through it, and, you know, I just was not really being very successful with what he was trying to get us to. We finished that little thing, and he moved us on down the pathway until finally the pathway just played out onto what turned out to be a precipice or a peak, if you will, kind of pushing the term, but all of a sudden the trees were gone and there was this little place where we could kind of sit on some rocks and it looked out over a cliff over into a valley below. And as I was looking out across there, what I frankly was thinking was this looks a lot like some of the area of New Mexico that I had visited before. And it never dawned on me until later the significance of that spot Because the significance of that spot, according to the Jewish guides who will take you all over the place there, is that that's called the mount or the peak of the precipice where they tried to push Jesus off. It didn't dawn on me the significance of that even. And now if I look back on that and if I have the chance ever to stand again on that spot, I'm going to remember the significance that it's at that spot that a bunch of church people tried to kill God. Now they wouldn't have said it that way and it's maybe a little abrupt for me to say it that way, but let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, I hope you're already there, but in Luke chapter 4, and especially now in verses 28 and 29, I'm going to come back in and fill in the background on this in a moment. 
But as we jump to the end of this little section of Scripture, in Luke, 20, uh, Luke 4, verses 28, 29, and 30, it says this, And when they, that is the Israelite people who were there at Nazareth, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him, that is Jesus, out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. According to church tradition, that's where we were standing, at that spot. You ever stood at a spot where a bunch of church people tried to kill God? You might be sitting in a spot where that's happened before. As a matter of fact, if you're really honest with yourself, and I want you to be that this morning, it very well may be that you're sitting in a chair today whose occupant regularly likes to try to kill God. This is a sermon that uh, I really want you to listen with both ears. Okay, now what I mean by, by the way, if you have one ear, then I don't mean to be picky or anything like that, but uh, most of the time when we come into church, we really kind of listen with one ear and our other ear is listening to other stuff that our brain is talking about, like, you know, what time do the Texans play and do the Cowboys have a prayer today and what's for lunch and do I go to the meetings at 3 o'clock and 3.30 or 4 or whatever. And so our kind of our attention gets divided even though we're, Facing forward with both ears. Today, you really need to listen with both. Because I want to push your understanding of this text. It's a regular thing for us. We hear it. We know the story. But I want us to look a little deeper in this than what we normally do, probably. I titled this sermon, Let's Kill God. As I was starting to spin up to all of this stuff, uh, I, I was really kind of nervous about that. I even asked a couple of church people if they thought it would be okay because I know that when we do sermon titles and stuff, they go on our sign outside and for a better part of a week, people driving by look at them. And so I really pers- uh, particularly and specifically wanted people to drive by and go, let's kill God. That doesn't sound like a church thing. And maybe they might show up today. But some church people said, that's a, that's a little dangerous. So I had Spencer put in parentheses underneath it. Really? With three question marks. Do we really want to kill God? Let's look at the text here and let's see what we find. And what I want to do today is just kind of walk through it, okay? Because this is one of those things that just kind of unfolds for us. And I really want you to get past your normal level of understanding. That is the part that recognizes and say, oh, I know that story. And then we just go on to another story. Instead of that, let's look at it. So we start reading actually in verse 16. But I want to take it back two verses. And I'll explain that in just a few moments. So in chapter 4 in verse 14 we find this, it's a summary statement that Luke gives us after all of the temptation and after all of the birth narrative and all that stuff that we've been working through now for 14 weeks to get here, finally we get to Jesus in ministry. Verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Don't miss that statement. I've emphasized it already that Luke, on a regular basis throughout the book of Luke, and also its sister companion, which is called the book of Acts, Luke regularly emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit and his endorsement of Jesus. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all of the surrounding country. In other words, the words out, this guy is not your normal fare. He's different. He does stuff. He says stuff. That nobody else can do or say. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. 
verse 16. And he came to Nazareth. That's that little village that I was talking about. Archaeologists tell us that Nazareth was really not much at all. And all of the diggings and all that kind of stuff that's happened in the ruins of Nazareth, they've not really found anything that would make anybody believe that anybody was anybody in Nazareth. No real money to speak of, no real much there to be famous for. Even in another part of Scripture, we have somebody who says, because anything really good come from Nazareth? And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This is hometown stuff now. Jesus brings his road trip back home, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. And now we get Jesus reading from this scroll of Isaiah. But it's in a passage that we call one of those servant, suffering servant songs. It's, it's a point of messianic prophecy for those old, what we call Old Testament Jews. And so in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, we find this. This is what Jesus read. Luke's account says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, that fits. We've already seen Luke emphasize that. I started off reading today underscoring that. Jesus at this point knows exactly who he is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so in the end there, he pulls in what seems to be Isaiah 58, verse 6, I think it is, which refers back to that Old Testament practice that we're not even sure that the Jews really practiced much, which was the year of Jubilee, the 50th year when all slaves are free and all debts are canceled. And if you had to sell your land because you had debts you couldn't pay, all of that comes back to its original tribal allotment. It's the year when everything gets settled out the way it's supposed to in Israel. Jesus pulls this scroll and he starts looking backwards and he pulls them right up into the presence It says, verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. The normal practice in the synagogue was to read from the Torah, which is the law, and to read maybe from the prophets and that's what Jesus has done here. And then the visiting dignitary gets to preach a sermon. What do you have to say about what you just read or what we just read? And so Jesus now is that guy. He's been all over the countryside, apparently. His fame precedes him, apparently. And so he now sits down, he gets it all together, and they look at him with anticipation. And Luke is a masterful storyteller, and he brings us right up to the brink. And it's anticipatory of what might he say. And Jesus blows them away, verse 21. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now stop. Let's let that filter over you for a moment. That is a huge statement that Jesus makes. In this synagogue, using a passage of Scripture that all of them recognize to be messianic in its note. And Jesus says... Today's the day. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And apparently they get it. So we pick up reading as we go. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? 
In other words, we know this guy. This is not really a question like, you know, is, he reminds us of Joseph. That's not what this is about. This is one of those statements where they're looking at him going, I know that dude. That's the kind of statement it is. You know, I hadn't been in Lumberton um, as far as living here. You know, we're now three months into our, our third year. And so, right, I mean, just maybe days, maybe even hours after we moved here, uh, someone in church took us out to eat at a local place. And as we got out of the vehicle and started to go in to eat, somebody was coming out. And this person who took me to eat stopped and said, hey, you need to know this guy. And so he introduced me to this guy who is the father of one of Lumberton's Favorite sons, he's a professional athlete, not the father, but the kid. And so he started telling me about this guy and his son and how, and and I'm impressed by that. And my mind immediately, immediately goes back to an experience that I had in church I served before I came here. We had a lady in our church. She in and of herself was not all that notable, although she made it a point to make life interesting for most people in her life. You know what I mean by that? Just leave it at that. But her grandson was a professional football player, like NFL-type professional football player. And as a matter of fact, her grandson had played at one of these small Texas schools that Baylor likes to beat up on. Uh, It's Texas Tech, okay? And Texas Tech hopes to get a real football team at some point. And then this particular time, he had played for Texas Tech and was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts. Now, this was when the guy, what's the Manning guy who plays for Indianapolis or used to play for Indianapolis? He was the quarterback there. And so I started putting these things together. And this guy was a lineman blocking for Peyton Manning. And even then, we felt like Peyton Manning was probably going to be one of those Hall of Fame kind of quarterbacks. And uh, so this guy showed up in church one Sunday. He was an animal. I mean, he's the biggest man I ever saw. I mean, he, he made big men look little. A lineman, professional football, NFL caliber lineman, the year that the Colts were supposed to win it all. And he was in church the week before the Super Bowl. Now, the reason he was in church with us the week before the Super Bowl, first of all, his grandmother was a member of our church, but secondly, his team got upset the week before, so he wasn't in the playoffs that week. I forgot that when I was talking to him, and I said, man, I thought you guys were going to the Super Bowl. And this huge man looks down at me like this and squashes me just like that. I was taken by the notoriety of this somebody. The native son for that church had come home. And here I was talking to this huge guy, thinking, wow, man, I got a chance to talk to a guy who blocks for Peyton Manning. After that, I realized he really was just a guy. Actually, he was a guy who couldn't win the big game enough to go to the big game. But you see, we don't think like that. We get these native sons, these famous people, and if we have any kind of connection to it, we like to tie on to that connection. And that's what's happening in this case. These people hear Jesus. They've heard these reports about him in Galilee. And so they begin now to look at him as he shows up, say, hey, man, maybe he'll speak today. They give him the scroll. He talks. And of all things, he says, today, this messianic prophecy is fulfilled for you. And they look at each other, and they look at him, and it's a great day in church. And they nudge each other, and they say, 
He's one of us. I knew him before he was famous. But tied to that is the seed of what becomes their attempt to murder God before it's all said and done. Because tied in this statement that Jesus makes, this Isaiah 61 passage that he quotes or reads, is their expectation that the Messiah would come in and he would kind of shake things up, not kind of shake things up, he would definitely shake things up. And these people who were called the children of Israel, who were now under the boot of the Roman centurions and the Roman emperor, all of a sudden the Messiah would show up, and if it happened to be him like he was saying it was, then that means Rome's going to the wayside, we'll kick them to the curb, and finally as Jews, we'll be in charge, we'll be the top of the heap. That's their expectations. That's what they've been taught as a people. And all of those messianic psalms and all those messianic songs like we find in Isaiah 61 point to that day for them. And their expectations were this is a nationalistic great day. It's actually even more than that. Because not only, and this is that statement, isn't this Joseph's son, because not only is this guy claiming to be Messiah, which means Rome's going to go to the curb of history, and the Jews will take over again, tied to that is this point of personal connection. Isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, if he's the guy and he's going to do that, we're in good shape to get personal favors because of it. After all, Joseph, I mean, excuse me, after all, Jesus, you remember when your mother was sick and I took soup over there to her, you remember I took her, you're going to have to take care of me when you come into your kingdom. We see a lot of that from his disciples later as we work our way through. And so at Nazareth, that's the background for what's going on here. And before we go any further, let's make sure we wear what is ours to wear out of this. Let's find ourselves in that little synagogue gathering as we meet here in the church on the 21st century. What are your expectations of God? We all have them. Every one of us comes in here. If you're in here at all, there's some level of expectation that you have of God that you expect him to do for you or to be for you. And with that... And in the spirit of what's going on here, let me make sure that we deal with the question that follows it up, which is, are your expectations of God valid, really? Now, here's where the both ears part comes in. Hear me very closely. You know, they tried to kill Jesus over this, and they tried to kill his disciples later, and they tried to kill Paul, and they did kill Stephen, and did kill Paul ultimately, and I don't want to be part of that group. Okay, I don't want to get killed over this, so at least if you're going to kill me, quote me right. One of the problems that we have, our expectations of God, are that we believe often that if we can just hang a verse of Scripture on it, then automatically it's right. Okay, now be careful. And I'm being very careful here. I've been here for two years and several months, you know week in, week out how high a view of Scripture I hold, okay? So I'm not making this as some, uh, you know, off-the-cuff kind of remark. I'm very serious about what we're doing here. These people have a very biblical basis for what they believe, or at least that's what they believe they have. 
But Jesus is going to come and he's going to turn that on its ear in just a second. So before we even get there, let me get this thing in front of us that just because you believe something is expected of God, you hold him to it. And if you find a verse that fits that, you just hang it on there and automatically it's okay. That's not always the case. You know that there from this passage of Scripture... I'm not going to take the time to go into all of this stuff because it's too intricate for you to care about or for me to want to go into. But there is a whole approach to theology that hangs on this verse. It's called liberation theology. And the whole idea of it, and try to summarize it as best I can, is we take this passage, we don't, but other people do, take this passage where Jesus says, I've come to liberate those two free the captive and to make sure the blind people see and set the captives free and all that kind of stuff. And they take that and it becomes for them the excuse for socioeconomic revolt. Maybe this is a good time in American church life, given American political life, that we make sure we're really careful about some of the positions that we take. This whole thing called liberation theology is set up And it becomes the basis for some of the greatest atrocities known to man about how people treat one another. All in the name of Jesus. Taken from this verse. It's wrong. But because most of us don't live in Central America or South America or some other place like that, let's bring it home and see how this fits on a regular church life kind of level. I served a church. I'll just go ahead and tell you as a church, I came before I came here. And we were tackling an issue where we needed to expand the leadership base of a particular area of church leadership. And the way that church had decided to do it, there was a whole set of bylaws that put to it, which was a good practice and a good thing to have. But in the spin-up towards providing this new set of leadership, one of the things that we needed to do was to review the way we chose these people. And in working through it, there was one little phrase in the bylaws for that church. That church had been, at that time, about 95 years on the planet. A church 95 years in practice with one little section of the way they expanded the leadership base that limited it to a whole group of people being totally wiped out of the possibility of ever serving in that church as a leader. Now, there may be good reason for that. But if it's not a biblical reason, it's not a good reason. And in this particular case, we started looking at the biblical basis for that. And even though they hung a verse on their reason for excluding a whole set of people, there's no way Scripture would have supported what they were saying. At least not responsible interpretation of Scripture. A proof text is not good enough grounds for us to exclude people. So make sure when you're studying Scripture that you handle it well. That was the discussion we had in that church. It is not enough just because you can grab a little piece of Scripture and post it on something that that automatically justifies and makes it right. Be responsible in the way you handle Scripture. And the reason I'm saying that is because these people were not. And before it's all said and done, they're ready to kill the preacher that day, which some of you are now based on what I just got through saying, I'm sure. So let's go on a little further and see what he has to say. You see, their deal was they strictly limited Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 to themselves. 
And then on top of that, because they were the people from Nazareth, it's even more just themselves. But Jesus now comes and he takes that interpretation and he flips it on them and it just makes them flat mad. So let's pick it up and read in verse 23. After they said, and is this not Joseph's son? Jesus says, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So here's what Jesus is doing. This is the next step for us. Jesus understands what they're thinking. He understands what they're saying to him. And better said, what they're not saying. They're nudging each other saying, hey, this is the dude we've heard about. We know him. Hey, isn't that, that's Joseph's son? We know, we remember him when he played soccer. Well, he probably didn't play soccer. They knew him. And now he's saying he's Messiah. And it's going to be good for us. We've heard about these reports of him all over the place. But you see, Jesus tags that. He knows that they don't really believe what he said. So he turns it on. He says, there's no question that you're going to say to me, that old proverb that says, physician, heal yourself. That's another one that says, you know, don't do other places what you can't do here. My dad used to say, never trust a faith healer who wears glasses. That kind of thing, okay? If you can't do it here where it matters, then, don't, then you can't do it at all. And so they bring it, he, bring, uh, he makes them bring it home. And so he says, you're thinking, you've done it over there. We've heard about what you did over in Capernaum. Let's see you do it here, which is another way of saying we don't really believe you can do it at all. Or I'm not going to believe until I can see. Here's a real truth that we find tucked in between these two verses. They want proof. Now, they like the fact that he's from there, but they still want proof. And so they dictate how this is going to go down, just like a bunch of Baptists. How often do you dictate to God just how it needs to go down? You you know as well as I do, in our prayers, on a consistent basis, whatever situation we're facing, we tell God, this is how it needs to go down. Put that right down on the bottom shelf for you. Some of us, this week, have been praying that there would be a tsunami in Washington, D.C. and just wash them all away. We decide what's best. And then we put God on it and say... You should do this. Now, that's that old sin nature, the essence of sin being controlled. That's that old part of us that says, we will tell you, God, how it has to go down. That's what's going on here. Jesus just won't have any of that. And so he calls their bluff, if you will. He puts them right on the spot. He identifies what they're really thinking with all of that stuff. And so he says, you're thinking to yourself, physician, heal yourself. You've done it over there. Do it over here. He calls it what it is. And now he gives them a couple of examples. Before we get to the examples, let me give you this statement. You want to chew on something. Here's a good thing to chew on. They are intrigued with him. He brings a lot to the table that no other person from their area ever had. Now Luke tells us, and we know, that's because he's the son of God. He's not just somebody else. By the way, that 
question, isn't he Joseph's son? Luke will be very careful to answer that through the rest of this book and his sister volume that's called the book of Acts. Luke will answer that definitively time and time and time again. No, he's not Joseph's son. He's the son of God. He's not just your average, ordinary, miracle worker guy. This is God himself in the flesh. A lot of people are intrigued with that. And even today, people are intrigued with Jesus. I was having a discussion with my dad yesterday. You know, Teresa and I drove up to Huntsville yesterday. You know the situation there. And so we try to go regularly to spend a little time with my mom and my dad. And uh, yesterday, Huntsville was having the fair on the square. That is an annual event where they get people to show up so they can take their money. That's what that is. And so around the downtown area of Huntsville, they put these little shops up and all over the place and you can walk through and you can buy stuff, okay? Usually severely overpriced, uh, but that's what you can do. So we went to be part of that, but also see my folks. I was sitting with my dad and having a conversation with him and I love these conversations, especially these days. Uh, dad has been a mentor of mine for a long time, one of the wisest guys I've ever known. Uh, and uh, I said, Dad, you remember... That when you used to say, as a pastor, uh, the fans are fickle. And he kind of looked at me like, did I really say that? And finally he said, yeah, yeah, I think I remember that. I said, well, uh, I'm going to use that tomorrow in my sermon. So this is where we're at. The fans are fickle. Now I'll tell you how he used it in a minute, but let me make sure you're with me on that. Who is the guy that's quarterback of the Houston Texans football team. See, I'm trying to become a Houston Texans fan, okay? I've been a Cowboys fan all my life, okay? It's not that hard to make the switch, I'm finding, but um, who was the guy who quarterbacks the Houston Texans? Matt Schaub, all right? Now, I'm hearing, this week, I heard people, many people say, we need to get rid of Schaub. We wish he'd have a heart attack and die, something like that. You know, he's terrible. They need to trade him away. Now, see, I haven't been a Texans fan for a while, ever. And, uh, but yet I still remember, you remember the guy who was quarterback before Matt Schaub? David Carr. Okay. I remember hearing people say, David Carr's the worst quarterback ever. I can't believe he's the first guy they ever drafted. Isn't that right? David Carr. And I remember hearing people say, after he didn't help them win immediately, He's horrible. We need to get rid of him. Let's get a real quarterback. So they did that, and Schaub comes in, and people are saying he's the Messiah. They're bowing. They're letting his car drive down the highway with you know police escort. They think Matt Schaub's the greatest thing ever until he doesn't win. He throws an interception, and the game goes into overtime, and they lose. And now he's terrible. we got to get somebody else. The fans are fickle. All right? Remember that when people start singing your praise about how wonderful you are at work. Fans are fickle. Let me tell you something. That's especially true with the disciples of Jesus. One of the most sobering sections of Scripture in the Gospel, Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to them, and his disciples understand it's a high price. I mean, he, he said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. But in the process of that, he also said, uh, come to me and die and walk with me. And your life as you know it is over, and now it's different. 
So Jesus starts talking in this terminology that says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me or something like that. And the people hear that, and John says that they said to themselves and among themselves, this is a tough saying. Who can, who can receive that? In other words, did he just say what I think he just said? We're supposed to eat his blood and, or eat his flesh and drink it. That, I don't understand that. A little bit further down, In that same passage, it says of those same people who, by the way, weeks before had been flocking to him because he was raising people from the dead, healing blind people, healing lame people, making people who are deaf able to hear, feeding them from just nothing The same Jesus that everybody was a fan of all of a sudden starts talking tough and people start going, ah, you know, finally John says that many followed him no more because they just couldn't go with what he was saying. Churches in America today are full of Christian people who are intrigued with Jesus, but they're not invested. That's why we have churches that are anemic As long as Jesus is putting on a show, it's all good. But as soon as the air leaves the building and we're not excited anymore, we're going to go find something else. Well, that's the picture of this event in this synagogue. They love what he said and they love the reputation and he's one of us. And man, visiting preacher, big shot celebrity comes to town. Woo, glad I went to church today. What did he just say? Here's what he just said. Let's read on. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in the hometown as well. In other words, we don't totally believe it. Show us. And here's Jesus' response. And it's the trigger for them to want to kill God. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up there three, we, uh, three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, that is the Israelite widows who were suffering, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Here's what Jesus said, example one of where you're getting Isaiah 61 wrong is that God's plan isn't just so that you can feel good about yourself. God's plan involves the Gentiles. These people at Nazareth were going to have none of that. After all, they're in position to get the best blessing. And now Jesus turns the table. And if that's not enough, he gives them a second example. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In other words... There are lots of sick people when Elisha was a prophet, but God sent him outside of the land of Israel, or at least he brought the outside to him, and it's another Gentile. Here's what Jesus has done. I'll summarize it this way and we'll be done. Jesus has said to these people who were looking for favoritism from their favorite son, Jesus has said, because your faith is wrongly focused, I'm not doing any of that here. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
When you came to church today, did you plan on killing the preacher? If you did, please leave now. You see, we don't come to church expecting to kill God or God's messenger. But what happens is, the reason I said earlier that somebody, even the one sitting in your seat, might be guilty of wanting to kill God is because we don't always like to hear what God has to say. And when he says something we don't want to hear, we just push him off to the side. We marginalize him and treat him as if he's not there. We kill him. Except you can't kill him. And the problem with God and the problem with Jesus, the problem with the Holy Spirit, all the, you know, the Trinity as we know it, the problem with that is they just keep coming back and making demands of us. And this same Jesus who would cause lepers to be healed and who would walk on the water and who would take little pieces of lunch and make sure everybody had a chance to eat of those things. The same Jesus who would die on a cross and rise from the dead defeating our worst enemy, which is not just death, it's sin. That same Jesus says to these people, I can't do it here. I can't do it here because you're wrong in what you're expecting. So what did you come in here today expecting of God? Some of you are going through stuff in your life. And when you step back from it all, you look at it and go, this is wrong. I shouldn't have to go through this. Really? How long have you been God and you know well enough to know what you should and should? If you really want to get right down to it, you don't deserve anything except the worst of life. We're all under the curse of sin. Jesus Christ offers to us real life. But in order to get to real life, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross. That means we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live to his pleasure, to his call. And he gives us the life that he gives. All kinds of problems with the way we approach all of this. Probably the one that is just jumps out at me the most is that idea that says... We're special. We know enough scripture. Now I'm back to what I was saying earlier about be careful. You don't just grab something and put a verse scripture on it and you know, all of a sudden it makes it right. We are special. Scripture tells us that God loves us. He loves you, John three sixteen. He loves you so much, Jesus Christ died just for you. But when we take that... We try to flip it on God and say, because you've done this for me, I'm somebody now, you will do what I tell you to do. We slip right back into that sinful way of approach. He will be God always. And yet he offers you life and he offers me life. My question to you is, that life that you're controlling and you're running, how's that working out for you? When he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's your offer today. So what do you do with that? All the stuff that you're trying to run that's just wearing you out. You tired of trying to do that? Why don't you just drop it at the foot of the cross and say, God, whatever you want with that. Well, that's a tough thing to say because God may not want what you want. But there again, that puts us right back at wanting to kill God, doesn't it? Let's pray. And so, Father, as we come to this, we recognize 
just how insidious this sin problem is. Even in our most religious thinking, we have to fight that tendency to paint you into a corner or to stuff you into a box. Help us to be good, responsible interpreters of Scripture. To give it the authority that you have placed in it and to treat it accordingly. Not to just go off the surface and not just some trite, religious, historical kind of saying, but to get down into the depths of what you teach us and in the midst of that to let you be God. I struggle with that. I know this room's full of people who struggle with that. Help us to be invested. Not to be like these who we've read about today who had their own view of it when it didn't work out the way they wanted it. Well, they just walked away from it. Help us not to be that. Help us to be all in for your glory is our prayer in Jesus' name.